Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is sponsored by the Vice City Psychic Hotline. We helped you in your past life, and we can help you in this one. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. I am your host, Ben Siders, here with your other host, Kirk Damon. Once again, Kirk has in the caption of the Enterprise. This is part three of the character copyright and fan fiction three-part series. This is this is your Return of the Jedi episode. <laughs> Uh-oh. Does anyone have Ewoks? No, there are no Ewoks. Uh, none at all. So we're going to continue our discussion about character copyright, uh, and we're going to get into a little bit on universe copyright, which is sort of a newer concept that's that's sneaking into uh, the law here. I'm not and, sure it's even truly sneaking in as universe copyright. I think it's something no. that's sneaking in as character copyright. I use universe copyright, and for those of you who may have missed prior episodes, I actually wrote a, a law review uh, article at one point in time. I actually gave a presentation in conjunction with universe copyright. Um, so that's a little bit why we talk about it and sort of why I talk about it. I'm not sure I can claim any credit with that term becoming popular in any way, shape, perform. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's an interesting concept because it, it kind of piggybacks off of the character copyright concept, which says you can't just make new stuff with other people's characters if they're still copyrighted. Yep. But why can't you just set something in somebody else's universe, which is what a lot of fans want to do? So yep. we're going to get into that. But t- today we're going to do something a little different from most of our episodes. We usually have sort of a general outline of what we want to talk about, and we, we start off on that path and then quickly get sidetracked and, and, and rarely <laughs> come back to what we originally <laughs> planned to talk about. But today we're going to go through a, a set of specific cases that, that really run the gamut from the 30s up until uh, last year and, and talk about how these things have actually played out in real cases, which is probably your, your best indication of how, um, you know, how these concepts will play out in practice if you were to go do one of these things. So our first case, Kirk, is Nichols versus Universal. This is a 1930s case from yep. the Second Circuit. That's the East Coast in New York. And there's a companion case that comes up later called Warner Brothers versus Columbia. And both of these cases – are talking about the character copyright concept, but they articulate two different ways for courts to, to look at it. Yep. Uh, so the first one in Nichols involved a play, and I, I don't remember what the specifics, specifics of the play were, but it was basically somebody had written a play about, you know, uh, star-crossed lovers, basically. Yep. It's not Romeo and Juliet, but a play that was like Romeo and Juliet that involved uh, racial strife between Irish and Jewish immigrant families in America. Yep. And again, 1930s, we're, we're in that context. And then somebody else wrote a play that was the same basic concept. Uh, A sued B, uh, litigation shenanigans ensued, and one of the most famous judges in the history of American law, Judge Learned Hand, also one of the great writers in American law. Yeah, I believe the Universal was actually a movie, is actually the the piece that was actually asserted against them. Yeah, that may have been what it was. I want to say it might be a West Side Story, but I'm not certain that's correct. You know, that could be, because it's, it's also Romeo and Juliet, yeah. <laughs> again. Uh, well, Learned Hand, uh, I'm gonna re- this, we don't read quotes very often. I'm going to read this one because I just love the way he writes. He says, The less develop the characters, the less they can be copyrighted. That is the penalty an author must bear for marking them too indistinctly. While we are as aware as anyone that the line wherever it is drawn will seem arbitrary that is no excuse for not drawing it. We have no question on which side of the line this case falls. A comedy based upon conflicts between Irish and Jews into which the marriage of their children enters is no more susceptible of copyright than the outline of Romeo and Juliet. And that's, I think, exactly the comment we just made. It's the the idea behind star-crossed lovers. One can trace back to Romeo and Juliet. One mm-hmm. can probably trace it back before then. Um, We're still making that movie. Yeah, Titanic. Yeah, <laughs> we we make the movie. I mean, we make the movie every year. There, there's a movie for Romeo and Juliet. Effectively made every year. That's not called Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Every so often, they are called Romeo and Juliet. 
Um, but I think if you looked at the most recent Romeo and Juliet movie that was made, it's not Shakespeare's play by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. It's a mo- it's a modern take on it. Um, and what, uh, what it's interesting when you sort of talk about the learned hand because I think this is one of sort of the great quotes as to the history of character copyright. His comment is, and what I really like about it is. The less developed the characters, the less they can be copyrighted. That's the penalty an author must bear for marking them too indistinctly. Basically, if you're a lazy writer, (laughs) you get less copyright protection. There's also an argument that if you're a less skilled writer. Yeah. And and that's kind of an interesting statement of the the better you are at writing your characters, the better you are as an author, the more entitled they are to copyright. There's a, a... Again, a community, there's kind of a weird sort of feeling in there of we want to protect the arts that are better. Yeah. And that's a it's that's a weird statement, but I think it's— It has some superficial appeal. Like, yeah. You know, intuitively, I think, well, why not? Why would we not want to afford more rights to people who are better at their craft? Yep. Here's the problem. Who gets to make that decision? Yeah. Is it going to be a jury? Yeah, and you kind of get into this thing. And like the examples of like, you know, ones where I think you, you get into it is you can see cases, and I don't think you have this one in here, but uh, one of the ones, if any of you guys know the Aqua song, Barbie Girl, um, and the associations with that, you know, Aqua was a, a sort of— I guess you'd say sort of mediocre, <laughs> not very well-known um, dance band from, I think, the 90s is when they were actually around. I remember it was the 90s. It was probably the yeah, late 90s. And they had a song called Barbie Girl, and there was some relation to that having to do with character copyright. And when you read the, the character copyright decision in there, one of the things the judge basically says is, since you're not a very good band, you're not protected. <laughs> Which I find very interesting, and I'll just point out the fact, and you can call me uh, you know whatever you want for doing this. I actually own the Aqua CD. and um, Com- Comment with omitted. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the fact of it is, they actually are a pretty decent dance band. Barbie Girl is probably not their best song. There's actually some more interesting stuff on the CD. Um, but I'm not sure anybody else bought it or anybody else ever <laughs> listens to it. Uh, it still plays on my iPod every so often. But it's it's one of those where you get into this in a few different cases where there's this idea of saying, because you're a famous artist, we'll protect you. Because you're money. not a famous artist, you won't. And, and we come back to follow the money. But now it's almost not fame because of money. It's fame it's because of fame. Oh. Yeah, or or is it or is it fame because of ability? That's what ability. he seems to be wanting yeah. to say. That the, or if it, if you make an artistic choice to indistinctly mark, as he says, these characters, then I, I, maybe this is a comment about breadth more than anything. I don't want to afford too much copyright protection to something that's defined vaguely, yeah. Because then you threaten to swallow up too much, and particularly in 1930, when your copyright duration was 14 years, this is a, a prescient decision. Yeah. Considering our last uh, discussion about how now these copyrights last for centuries. Yeah. But now you get into, and I think it's going to you know, sort of pick on is let's pick on artists for a little bit and like some modern artists where it's, hey, you know, we're going to have you look at this picture and then you look away at the white wall and you see the, mm-hmm. the reverse image of it. You, the picture is one color. So we look at that and say, what's the skill? Well, the skill is to show that to the user, except that's a standard scientific principle based on how the human eye works. Yeah. So where do we really see the skill here? What but is the most you would acknowledge that those are in Masex, and, and again, depending on what you think, I think in conjunction with some of those are arguably great artworks. Yeah, there was one uh, last time I was in D.C. They had a, an American flag on the wall at the Smithsonian, yep. one of the Smithsonian's. That was it was all the the wrong colors, but the idea was you stared at it for sixty seconds and turn around and there's a white wall behind you and you see the flag in the right colors. Yep. it's a really cool effect, even if you know it's coming. It's a cool effect, but you know that that raises an interesting question about whether if you were to do that to something else that's a famous uh, copyrighted work of art, yep. can you just reverse the colors and do that? Yep. Yeah, and that's and those kind of things. Actually, I just saw a guy. I was that we happened to be down in Silver Dollar City with the kids a little while. 
while ago. Uh, if I think you need to explain what Silver Dollar, Silver Dollar City is. an amusement park here in Missouri. Um, if you haven't gone, it's actually a really good one. And, um, it's in Branson? Uh, it's just outside Branson. Yeah. And they have all sorts of very good roller coasters. I'm a bit of a roller coaster geek. Um, so we, we go down there. The kids love them as well. Um, if you're not familiar with Branson, it was described in The Simpsons as Las Vegas for Ned Flanders. <laughs> Which is probably somewhat pretty accurate. Or, or, or said differently, a rated G version yeah. of Las Vegas. But, but some of those cities is kind of cool amusement park. It's definitely an amusement park, but it's also combined with like they have a lot of artisans. They do a lot of shows as well. Uh, there's also a cave you can tour, which is actually what created Silver Dollar City. But one of the shows we saw was a guy who's sort of a comedian magician, and he does a presentation, and it's you look at a spinning wheel for 60 seconds, and then he tells you to look at his head, and depending on which way he spins the wheel, his head either shrinks or grows. Oh, that's cool. Um, which is just kind of cool, you know, as to what it is. But you look at it and you say, that's a basic scientific principle, again, how the eye works. We look at these things like your idea of the American flag being reversed. It's playing off a basic principle of how the human eye works. Mm -hmm. Why do we look at this and say it's art? And, I mean, there's obviously people who question whether or not modern art is art. Um, But, you know, assuming we acknowledge the fact that there is at least some artistic expression that goes into it, where does that line get drawn between art and scientific principle? When we're talking about you have to give it sufficient distinctness. Yep. And that's really what came out of this Nichols case is this articulation of the sufficiently distinct or sufficiently delineated test, which was uh, what what Judge Learned Hand said, you know, the the better you paint this character, and I'm using paint in air quotes, the better you you describe them or you articulate them, then then the more likely that they are uh, protectable. This this is contrasted with the Warner Brothers case, which was, I think, a Ninth Circuit case. They used a different test called the story being told test. And they basically said, is the character and the story basically the same thing, or is the character just a vehicle for telling a story. That yep. could have been any character, and, and this is the the Maltese Falcon Sam Spade uh, case we talked yep, about. They a found Sam Spade ago. effectively a generic vehicle that he was yeah. just a detective. There was nothing about him. He was just an archetype, and you could have substituted anybody else in. Of yep. these two, both are still valid doctrines. I think we see courts gravitating towards the first test more so than the second. Yeah. There is some argument that Warner Brothers effectively has been overruled in the fact that there's yeah. so many more courts are following the other tests. Yeah, and it's also the Warner Brothers case was the Ninth Circuit, and most of these cases now come out of the Ninth Circuit, whereas yep. the, um, the the Nichols test of the Second Circuit. But we now see Ninth Circuit courts still using both. So yep. um, there's, there's no the, the Supreme Court, I think the point is the Supreme Court has not looked at this and said this is how you have to decide this. And I'm not sure they're going to, quite frankly. I think there's there's some real concern of how exactly do you say something sufficiently distinct or sort of well delineated. And I think it does bump into those problems where it's the, you suddenly look at it and say, if this person's famous, does that matter? If this person's been critically acclaimed, does that matter? Um, And those are things we should not necessarily be looking at when we say something is a creative or an artistic endeavor, a creation of the mind. It's sort of like looking at it and saying you can't patent something which isn't valuable. Hundreds of people patent things that aren't valuable, you know, which are still invented even mm-hmm. if they have no commercial value. I mean, the infamous scuba gear for dogs. <laughs> um, but it's one of those things where you look at it and say that has no commercial value. At the same time, is there something to be said for the fact that there is arguably a scientific creation there? Yes. Creating scuba gear for dogs is an interesting that's, question. That's one of the hardest things I've ever heard somebody attempt. <laughs> yeah, and so we kind of look at it and say, yes, is that entitled to a patent? The patent system has clearly said yes. We don't care whether or not there is any pat- any you know commercial availability to it here. It simply isn't new and novel. Yeah. Um, well, somebody got a patent for swinging sideways on a swing. And, well, uh, that's arguably... That's anticipated by prior art. Yeah, but. Yeah. Okay, so the next case we're going to talk about is a Salinger versus Colting. That, that is uh, the Salinger you've you've heard of from Catcher in the Rye. That we were uh, all forced to read or weren't allowed to read depending on which school you went to. You know, I've still never read that. I've never read it either, actually. We, I don't, was never assigned and I've never voluntarily read it. I probably should. Well, in any case, uh, Kirk, I think you're familiar with this case, aren't you? Yep. 
All right, why don't you uh, give us a rundown of it? Yeah, so basically it's um, relatively recently, and we're talking sort of late to like early 2000s. Yeah. Um, a totally unrelated author, I think he had no connection whatsoever to J.T. Salinger, um, wrote an unauthorized sequel to it. Um, the sequel was called uh, 60 Years Later, Coming Through the Rye, um, and basically focused on the same character. It was set 60 years later. It did physically, was written effectively 60 years later, and a lot of it was to sort of revisit the themes. I mean, again, I have not read Catcher in the Rye. I know the people who out there are seriously serious English geeks and stuff like that are going to get all over me for it, but a lot of the reason that Catcher in the Rye is studied so sufficiently has nothing to do with it as an actual work of writing, but has to do with the fact of the types of th- stories and moral quandaries and mm. questions it presents. And so the idea of now revisiting a lot of that same subject matter 60 years later, what does that mean? And obviously using the same characters for the same reasons. Um, I think one could look at it and sort of say it's kind of like looking back and saying, you know, um, what if we were to go back and take any other sort of great work of literature that investigated problems from the 1930s, from the 1940s, mm-hmm. from anywhere in sort of American history, and now said, hey, let's revisit them a number of years later. Uh, we talked a bit about it, superheroes, yeah. um, Captain America's relevance in today's day and age versus Captain America's post-World War II. Um, you know, the Watchmen being, you know, concerns about Vietnam uh, and then the 80s coming into concerns about today. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's another place where we've seen this type of thing coming through. Well, and, and the author in this case, you know, he was sued, obviously, by, yes. by Salinger. No, Salinger's he, a state, actually. He's but. a state, yeah. So he argued fair use, saying, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to uh, to to expand upon uh, this this work. Yeah. But the only thing he really took was the character. That was so it. That was it. Out. Yeah. Everything else was wholly original. But the, the court didn't didn't buy it. This is the Second Circuit again. Uh, court didn't buy it, and they, they basically concluded that fair use should criticize, it should analyze, it should parody, it should serve one of the fair use purposes of education and that kind of thing, uh, or, or criticism. Yep. Well, First Amendment type concerns. And that this wasn't that. This was more homage or just continuing the story Story. Yep. It was not meant to be some sort of commentary on the original work. It was just profiting off of the the the, the knowledge that the public has, yep. the, the public's pre-existing knowledge of this work. And I think that's a real key thing. Is it's one of the things that sort of said in conjunction with this is it wasn't effectively critiquing the original work. In some sense, it was using the style of the original work and the characters of the original work to critique something else, which was the same something else that had been critiqued by the original work. Um, and so that's the idea. I mean, you know, one of the examples, and I think would be a great sort of, you know, carry on as to where you could look at this type of thing, is imagine somebody taking George Orwell's 1984 and writing 2084 mm-hmm. and basically taking the same characters, the same style, and setting it as, hey, here's what happens 100 years later because 1984 is obviously didn't happen. Yeah. Um, you know, it is now dated as to what it is. Same with 2001. Same with, you know— the, you know, Terminator. We, we have all these events which occurred. You know, Skynet did not become active on the day it was supposed to become active. But could we now look at that and say, hey, we should set it in the future? And we can look at that. And I think that's some of what we had in Salinger, the Salinger case was that idea. But the court very purposely said it needs to critique the work. It's yep. not the social critique the work may talk about. It's not even continuing what the critique is. And I think there's an interesting thing of the idea of now when we're talking about a work out there, I think the vast majority of authors um, – I think a huge number of people who make movies would say there is a social critique, there is a statement beyond what the movie story actually is. And what this has kind of said is you can't investigate the same question using the same characters. 
by changing the setting, by doing whatever mm-hmm. it is, you really have to use a new character. And there's an intriguing component of that because it's the idea of saying there is some political commentary here, and maybe we'd said we can't do that. Well, that gets us to our next case, which is SunTrust versus uh, Houghton Mifflin. I always think Dunder <laughs> Mifflin when I see yeah. an 11th Circuit case from 2001. In this case, somebody made an authorized, un- un- unauthorized retelling of Gone with the Wind called The Wind Done Gone, told from the point of view of one of Scarlett O'Hara's slaves. Uh-huh. And this was held to be a fair use because the shift in narrative perspective was used to criticize the original author's portrayal of race and, and race relations in the book. Yep. Uh, and so the you know there was and and this is starkly contrasted with the the Salinger case where you know this is a more direct I want to say I use the word ripoff but a retelling of the same story yep. clearly using the same copyrighted work clearly using the same characters as well the same characters seems to be more clearly a case of copyright infringement. Than the Salinger case, yep. but because the purpose of the work was different, Salinger was an infringement, and this one was not. And now we see the idea of what is the criticism, and I think this is the thing with it where we're saying, what are we doing? This was basically saying, hey, we're criticizing the original Gone with yeah. the Wind. We are not utilizing Gone with the Wind or a sequel of Gone with the Wind to criticize the same thing as Gone with the Wind. Yeah, this is not we a are commentary. Criticizing Gone with yeah. the wind, wind itself. Yeah, it's, it's not a commentary on the institution of slavery itself, but rather how it was portrayed and, and sort of glossed over. And Gone with the Wind. Yeah, and I think that that's that's where you get one of the interesting things with it. I think this is one of those, when we talk about fan fiction, people talk about it and say, but it's criticism, but it's parody. And the answer to it is, is those have to be of specific things. It can parody the work. It can criticize the work, but it can't necessarily use the work to criticize. It can't necessarily use the work to parody. And I think that's an important statement of sort of the way courts have found this in a lot of cases and what we really see here. Um, and it's an interesting thing because as well, I, I do kind of wonder, you know, you know, one of these cases is from 2001, one of these cases is from 2010. Even today, if we had these, would we see different results in these um, with both of them going one way or going one of the, uh, or the other way? Or will we still see the same kind of dichotomy between them? And the answer to that is I really don't know. I think the it's courts had say. trouble with this. Because uh, exactly the court, the court is, is supposed to apply the law, you know, law free from passion, right? They're supposed yeah. to just apply the law as it is. That's easy to say. It's hard to do. It's really yeah. hard to do. It's really hard to do because, again, I think you look at it and say, in some sense, you know, The Wind Done Gone, again, I haven't read it, but the concept behind it is a very sort of useful literature type of thing, very useful statement. In it's some a powerful sense, you kind of look at it and say, it's you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip ahead and then we'll come back. It's number nine on our list. Um, a case called Dr. Seuss Enterprises versus Penguin Books, Ninth yep. Circuit, 1997. This this follows on in the same concept of parody versus, I call it satire, though I guess it's not really. But the work is called The Cat Not in the Hat, and it retold the O.J. Simpson murder trial story in the style of Dr. Seuss. Yep. So this one's interesting because it's not copying any particular Dr. Seuss book. He never wrote a book about the O.J. murder <laughs> trial. It's just using the general style, yep. the, the look and feel, you'd say. Uh, and, and the court held that this was not a valid use of Dr. Seuss for parody because he was not parodying Dr. Seuss himself, Again, but rather yep. using Dr. Seuss's work to comment on something else. So Dr. Seuss sued for copyright infringement, and uh, the court said not a fair use. 
And I, I find this one fascinating because he didn't even copy. It's not like he took Fox and Socks and yeah. then, you know, and, and then made a, a retelling of that. He just used the same style. This is, to me, 100% a trade dress issue, not yeah. copyright. And again, presumably he didn't say it was a Dr. Seuss book or anything along those lines, so we don't have a trademark case here Even now. Cat in the Hat, that, yep. that's a title. That's not copyright or trademark. Yeah. But again, I think we see the, the comment with the case of this, you know, a court looking at it and saying you did not parody the work. You're entitled to parody the work. You're entitled to criticize the work, but you're not entitled to sort of use it as a way to criticize something else. Interestingly, with this, we know Dr. Seuss wrote many of his own books as criticism. I mean, mm-hmm. no, you need to read no further than the Lorax to know that. It's obvious. Yeah. Um, you know, he's commented— Star-bellied Sneetches. Yeah, Star-bellied Sneetches. I mean, um, Yertle the Turtle, you know, which is recognized to be sort of, you know, an argument for, for World War II. Um you know, there's a lot of sort of things out there where you look at it and say, Dr. Seuss himself was doing political commentary. Wait a minute. Why can we not continue that idea? Why can we not say that, hey, let's write this childish style, mm-hmm. which is for political commentary on modern issues? And what is what is his writing style? You know, to yep. me, the characterizing aspect of it is I can't think of a word that rhymes, so I'm just going to make up a new one. Yes. He does do a lot of that, as to, and I think that's sort of best in um, – is best discussed in Walk It In My Pocket. Yeah. Um, you know, which is pretty much making up creatures to rhyme with things. Yep. Um, but, yeah, I think the, the problem you run into is, is it not just rhyming? And anybody who's read any children's books knows that huge numbers of them utilize rhyming forms, utilize oh, yeah. some form of poetic form, um, some of which use it much better than others. Um, anybody who has small children, by the way, if you want sort of a great book having to do with rhyming, I would highly recommend the book called Bubble Trouble um, because it is an extremely complex rhyming scheme um, that the author sticks with very, very rigidly, and it really works. It's a lot of fun to read, actually. Yeah, my kids love it when I read Fox and Socks. I'm trying to get as fast as I can with that, but there's a couple <laughs> couple pages there that I just cannot get through. I can through. do Fox and Socks pretty fast, I, I can do most of it pretty fast, except for, what's the one part I get screwed up on? Um, I usually have trouble with the cheese and the trees. Yes, that, <laughs> that one screws me up, and then Bim and Ben with Ben's Broom and Ben's Broom. Oh, that one I can do fast. <laughs> I, I cannot, I cannot, strangely enough. Okay, the next case is uh, Anderson versus Stallone. It's, yes, it's that yes, Stallone. Stallone. California, 1989. This is a weird one. So those of you who've ever written fan fiction, you've probably heard of spec scripts. Uh, probably half of you have sent one into Paramount at some point for Star Trek episodes. Uh, but people do sometimes write uh, you know, scripts on their own for uh, you know, episodes of TV shows or even sequels to movies. And in this case, an author, Anderson, wrote such a script for Rocky IV before Rocky IV had been made. Yep. Sent it into the studio. Uh, the studio, uh, you know, by all appearances, did nothing with it. But Rocky IV then comes out, which has some things in common with the script. So the most important meeting set in East Germany. Yes, and I believe the the nature of who Rocky is fighting and why is also yeah. similar. It was uh, the the Russian guy. It's the Russian, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't I don't remember it that well. Uh, so uh, you know, Rocky IV hits the theater. The screenwriter sues and says they stole his idea. Uh, the court said no. You don't have any copyrights in your script because your script is an infringement, an infringing derivative of the first three Rocky movies. So my first thought was, that doesn't make any sense. A derivative work, by definition, is separately copyrightable from the original. And the fact that it's not authorized, are they saying that means it's not copyrighted? Yep. I mean, it seems to me it would be copyrighted, but still an infringement. And that's, I think the thing that you, or still not an infringement, I think is what you're, um, the, the thing that I think you bump into with this, and I think the, the thing that's interesting about this holding is the fact that they found that the underlying spec script was not copyrightable. Yeah. And let's compare this. Remember, we talked previously, I think a couple episodes back about the A-Team case. 
where again we have a sort of a spec script laying out the nature of the the yeah. A team, you know, types characters, setting up archetypes for these characters, yep. and again found not to be copyright infringement. It wasn't necessarily found in that case that there was no copyright because of the fact that it was a derivative. It was found that it lacked sufficient detail. Mm-hmm. This was found to. Be, to be a derivative. So we have sort of two different cases where it now says, hey, in one case, you're, you're unprotected by copyright because you didn't provide sufficient detail. And the next one, you provided sufficient detail. But because your detail used an existing character, it's also not subject to copyright. And you kind of jump out here and you're like, wait a minute. You know, it's sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't type of concern. Yeah. I mean, th- th- they said the only thing you used, uh, that, you know, that the only thing a studio used from your script was the Rocky character, which they already own. But what about the other boxer? Yeah, and the other elements and all the other stuff with it. Now, again, you could look at those and say those aren't subject to copyright. That's it's sort not of characters. The, yeah. East Germany is not a character, at yep, least. Although you know. then it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it would it's be not now. now. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Uh, next, this is the case that I find the most interesting here: Klinger versus Conan Doyle Estate, Seventh <laughs> Circuit, two thousand fourteen. So Kirk talked about the Sherlock Holmes situation, I think, two episodes ago, and it, it provides a hint about what might happen with Mickey Mouse. So in this situation, somebody wanted to take uh, the Sherlock Holmes and Watson characters and write new stories with them. The problem is that some of what Doyle wrote was written before 1923. If you remember from our last episode, stuff prior to 1923 is now public domain. Stuff after is not yet. So it was therefore out of copyright in the public domain. But other elements of the of the Holmes stories were written after 1923 and so are still copyrighted. So the question is, if only some of the stories with the characters are in the public domain, is there any copyright protection for the character itself? Kirk, what they say? Um, basically, no. No, interestingly um, enough. They said that, you know, the characters, but they do say that certain elements are protectable. Mm-hmm. So I think they sort of get into the issue of what exactly is Sherlock Holmes pre-1922 and what is Sherlock Holmes post-1923. And you can use the character pre the window, but not post the window. Now, there were specific aspects, and I'm going to touch on this in the last one. I know one of the ones is a fear of dogs mm-hmm. um, that that related to Sherlock Holmes and the difference of the characters. Um, that's an interesting thing. The one that I think is going to be, quite frankly, the most interesting question in conjunction with this, when it comes due, and we've got a number of years before this, is not so much Mickey Mouse, but James Bond. Yes. Um, what is that character? <laughs> what is the James Bond character? And I mean, James Bond is now the generic archetype for a spy. Yeah. I mean, he's become a generic archetype. And even in the most recent movie, if you guys haven't seen it, definitely go see it. Um, I'm a big James Bond fan, for those of you who don't know. But... Um, one of the things that you definitely bumped into is the idea that effectively James Bond is a different character. It is an archetype which is filled by different people. That's effectively yeah. what they're now saying is the structure of it. What does that mean? When? What is James Bond? Um, He's like a Persian immortal. One of them dies, they just slot a new one in. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, there's been a lot of stuff like that even, you know, and you're talking about science fiction of the idea of, hey, if you have a continuing character and the idea of that, you know, certain characters are the same person over and over. I mean, let's talk about Highlander. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, how many characters does he assume you know during the course of it and I mean it's an important aspect of his personality but given that those characters are effectively immortal does that mean that the Highlander is immortal yeah yeah <laughs> that's a good one so also also interesting about this is pr- presumably if Sherlock Holmes is now public domain then does it just become the case that certain aspects of his personality are not public domain until those works expire which would mean for Mickey Mouse to go to our last episode maybe the way he's portrayed in Steamboat Willie becomes public domain yep. but other portrayals do not but it that gets back to like you this, can just yeah. indefinitely extend copyrights by just continually morphing and changing your property yep. which goes back to our Star Trek question with Star Trek Discovery moving towards the grimdark uh, genre do we now have a whole 
whole new Star Trek that's copyrighted for 70 more years. Yeah, and I think that that's the the interesting thing I think is that the Sherlock Holmes case does clearly point out that, you know, copyrights need to run. And and effectively they said, hey, it has run. These are works which, because of the nature of the timing, you know, are not extendable and and therefore don't have protection right now versus these other works that do. And I think this was the court trying to basically say, yes, we have to say this expires, but we have to recognize the fact that a derivative work is its own work. And in some sense, later Sherlock Holmes is a derivative of original Sherlock Holmes. How do we basically say the derivative is still enforceable, but the underlying copyright is not? And that is going to be something I think courts are going to struggle with immensely for the next probably 20 or so years when we're having these 1920 to 1940 mm-hmm. works expiring. You know, say we're going to see a lot of these. We, we mentioned in our last episode all these uh, uh, core elements of Americana are going to start falling into the public domain over the coming decades. I think we can expect to see a lot of movies made out of these things over the yeah. next decade and a lot of resulting litigation over what is and is not uh, in the public domain. Yeah, though, quite frankly, a lot of it's probably going to be licensed, to be quite true. A lot of that, movies, that's what you're probably to just be gonna safe. license to be yeah. safe. Yeah. Okay, so the next uh, next one, uh, Southern District of New York, 2008, Warner Brothers versus RDR Books. I like this one too. A Harry Potter superfan basically made a website that was basically a comprehensive uh, wiki or encyclopedia to the Harry Potter universe. It got crazy popular to the point where it's it was alleged that J.K. Rowling herself had used it to reference her own her own yeah. works. Uh, but then the site owner got an opportunity to to uh, sign a book deal for a print version of it, and as always happens, litigation shenanigans ensued. Yep. Uh, the publisher argued that it was a fair use, but the court said no. Uh, one of the main reasons was that Rowling herself was also publishing a Harry Potter encyclopedia and they said you're going to compete directly with her so it's it's a no-go. Yep. Now this is actually one of the things I think is interesting about this is and I think a key thing to keep in mind this was an encyclopedia this was not writing a book it was basically yeah. taking quotes taking specific the references compilation of previous things. works in a new form. Yeah and definitely sort of saying hey here's what it is you know so what room is you know this is the room number of where Harry Potter lived you know those kind yeah. of you know like esoteric things that you know we as geeks completely love. What I think is particularly interesting about this case is I happen to be it. So uh, for those of you who don't know, um, I'm a pretty big gaming guy. I was at Adepticon a few weeks ago, and one of the things I got to do is I got to talk with some of the authors there who write some of these enormously long serial books. You know, when you're talking, you know, 60, 70 books um, written in the same universe. And one of the comments I actually asked is I said, how on earth do you keep this stuff straight? <laughs> and what's interesting about it is that one of them actually commented and said, and I, I think it's an interesting comment, well, if I have trouble with it, a lot of times I just post something and my fans tell me what I what I need to know. That's an interesting <laughs> comment in light of this, you know, where you basically got the question of, you know, hey, this is a compilation as to what it is, but you have the argument, I think it's reasonably the thing that J.K. Rowling could very well sort of use this site herself to have referenced it. Why do we say you can't print this? But it's, that it, one, that's an interesting take on it. The second interesting take I have on this is there wasn't really any problem with it when it was a website. There was only really a problem with when it, it when it was to published and yeah. went to print. And this is not the first time this has happened. Um, the examples of this where you get into it, there are a lot of you know online web comics set in other properties. I mean, there's Star Wars ones. There's, mm-hmm. there's ones sort of all over the place. Blue Milk what, Special. Yeah. And, <laughs> one of your favorites. Yeah, Blue Milk Special, if you guys haven't read it, which I would like, – I'm totally going to plug it because it's a fantastic comic. It's utterly hilarious if you're into Star Wars. Um, but you have to go back and read it all from the beginning because we're currently in, uh, <laughs> in sort of expanded universe between – between um, getting to, to episode seven. So, 
Um, but yeah, the, the thing that I think you get into that is there's a lot of times there's a thing that basically says it's fine as a web comic, it's fine as being on the web, but as soon as it goes into print, we have a problem with it. And a lot of properties are sort of saying that we own the realm of print. What I think is so interesting about that is one, why? Why do mm-hmm. they sort of you know, worry about that? And particularly given the fact that isn't the world going digital anyway, yeah. shouldn't they be more worried about the digital and less worried about the print? Um, but there is some, some interesting stuff in conjunction with that. It's almost a difference of medium and the recognition of, hey, a book directly competes against the book because I want to publish the book, mm-hmm. but somehow the online resource doesn't because it's not quite then, the book. if Rowling wasn't going to publish own encyclopedia, is it all of a sudden a fair use? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. The, the fair use nature turns on whether what her plans are that this yeah. person may not even know about. And again, why is the book a fair, you know, not a fair use, but the website is a fair use? You know, or do we bump into the idea that, no, it really isn't a fair use, but it's an implied license? It always goes back to my... Uh, point I always make about fair use, which is that nobody really understands fair use. <laughs> nobody really does understand fair use. And and, and, and again, I think the, the thing we get into with this, and I think this is interesting because actually one of the things with the RDR books, I talked about the idea that I'd written this article about, you know, sort of in-universe. This case had not been decided when I actually wrote that, ar- that mm-hmm. article, and neither had the uh, Catcher in the Rye case. Um, but I actually predicted some of the these types of issues arising. I actually thought they were going to go the other way. And you know, hmm. talking about our ability predictions, I actually thought cases like this would go the other way. Um, that this actually would be found a fair use. Now, one thing to keep in mind with it, the RDR Books case, while it does come out of New York, is based a little bit on British law. Uh, they do interpret British law because of the nature of how this was happening. So there is some unique element of that in there. I don't think it matters that much, but it is worth just pointing out. No, and in British law and American law, and really Canadian law to some extent, are, are I wouldn't say interchangeable, but all operate off of the same legal tradition and it's it's rare that something comes up. There's some obvious things like like fee shifting in, in litigation, but uh, the, the legal principles are, are generally uh, consistent from, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. One thing I thought of when I read this case was about our online RPGs and other games like World of Warcraft where, you know, there's an enormous amount of data about what the game contains. So uh, where are the monsters? What equipment do they drop? What are the stats on the equipment? What do you need to do to complete quests? None of this is ever published by the game producers. EverQuest didn't do it. Uh, Camelot didn't do it. None of these games do it. They rely on fan communities to build independent websites and plugins that track all this data, accumulate it into databases, and make it available So to help people play the game without the game publisher yeah. having to document it all. So who owns the copyright to those data? Data compilations. Yeah. This would suggest that that's all unlawful. Well, as long as you leave it on the website, it's fine. Yeah, well, that's the thing, the thing you bump into. And again, I think the real question you have there is, is the website an implied license or something along those lines, or is it a fair use? Because yeah. that question's never been asked, and I think that's a very important question. The example I use with this, where's the user guide for Minecraft? It's YouTube. Yeah. There is no guide on how to play Minecraft. You I get think there's on a YouTube. wiki. There's a wiki I used to use. Yeah, there's a number of wikis, but I don't there. think any of them are official, you know, and, and stuff like that. But, you know, I remember the, you know, when you first start playing Minecraft, I mean, the, when I first started playing it, I ended up spawning in a jungle the very first time I played it. I had no idea what, what I was me. doing. That's a hard place to Yeah, spawn. you know, and I mean, I rapidly died. And I'm like, why do people play this game? This sounds awful. Yeah. And then I got on YouTube and said, how do you survive your first night? And it was, oh, okay, this is interesting. And I know, and I think there's other people who probably play Minecraft this way. I regularly play Minecraft first night. You know, mm-hmm. I only play until I've survived the first night and then I quit. Yeah. Because it's a sort part. of interesting way to play that, yeah. you know, and, and things with it and playing in different levels, trying to spawn in different hard locations and stuff like that. Remember that last world we made? We spawned like in a desert savanna and there was literally nothing to eat anywhere nearby. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd set it to hard mode. Like you had to, 
I, it took me forever just to get to, to get stable. It yeah, was we like basically all had to run time. and you know try to find something. And you, I mean, it really did sort of put your your skills to the test as to it what it is. It was hard, and we even joked about it, as saying we'd love to see a Minecraft mod. If any of you guys out there make Minecraft mods, yeah, we have some crazy ideas for like a zombie apocalypse Minecraft mod, yeah. which Kurt calls permanent midnight or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the one that I always wanted to see is you have one day and then it's night forever. It's night forever, yeah, um, and that's it. So there's only ever one day, um, so basically you have to figure out how to use lighting and how to use stuff like that, which I always thought would be a fun version to play. Well, the next case we're going to talk about, we've kind of already covered. It's the Paramount versus Axe in our case. Um, so this is this is the, the best case we have on what we call universe protection because the setting was borrowed from Star Trek, but virtually none of the characters or plot were. I don't think pretty uh, much anything officially yeah, can be I mean, pointed out was sort a specific of a, character. I think Axanar was an offhand reference to something that had happened previously, but none of the details were disclosed. So Paramount sued the production company and the Axanar producers uh, f- tried to get the case dismissed, but that didn't work. Uh, the court found that even uh, if uh, you know none of the individual particular elements that were used, like the ship design or the Federation or the uniforms, were you know were separately copyrightable, the selection of the things that they decided to include, the particular elements, were enough to make what they call a prima facie case of copyright infringement. Yep. And then the case settled. So we don't really know what. And, what and I think that's the key thing with this. This would have been a case that could have helped us decide this. We would have actually yep. helped point out where does this line lie. Unfortunately, the case really gives us no information. Yeah, this was I mean, Axnar saying we can't afford to fight and Paramount saying we're not sure we really want an answer. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's the, the best way to look at it. And, and I think the problem with it is, is you really can't draw much from the Axnar case, unfortunately, no. because of when it was decided. I think the only thing you can draw is the court recognizing that maybe it's enough. Yeah, the prima facie is a legal term that, that can roughly translates to passes the laugh test. Yeah. You know, like uh, you, you've got an, an, enough here that it's possible you could you could succeed. Not saying you will, yeah. but it's possible. A that lot of times the reason be prima facie becomes important is if you talk about something like a pro se litigant, a lot of times the things about it is is you have to basically state a claim which the court can grant relief in order to yeah. get into court. There's a lot of statement of the fact that prima facie is a very low standard so that a pro se litigant who says something – arguably meets the standard to at least allow the case yep. to go forward to at least allow them to have a hearing as to what it is because otherwise and the idea behind dismissing cases is if you're just presenting something where there's no possibility of you ever winning there's no point in having a yeah, yeah. we don't want to waste the court's time and so that's uh, the thing where they basically said this is they said maybe we yeah. don't know whether or not this actually would qualify, but maybe this is it's enough. It's possible you could find discussion. facts and prove a case here, and then, then yeah. it's settled. The last case, actually, I just saw this in a copyright reporter yesterday, case out of Florida. Uh, so if any of you remember Miss Cleo, <laughs> the psychic from late night TV, I think this was in the 90s probably. Yeah, probably the 90s, maybe the ladies, but yeah, definitely. So this was, uh, those of you who are, are younger will, will not remember this, but there used to be something called a 1-900 number, <laughs> which was a number you could call that would bill your credit card an obscene amount of money per minute. Like sometimes. Yep, it was the inverse s- of a 1-800. Instead yeah. of the person you call and getting the charges, you got the charges. Yeah, and the charges were significant, anywhere from a couple dollars a minute to, to $10 yeah. a well, minute. They be set by the phone number. Owner. Set by the phone number owner, um, and th- these were everywhere. They were mostly used for uh, satisfying the the, the, the period interests. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Miss Cleo was a little bit different. It was a, a psychic TV network where this this actress dressed up as this sort of uh, a pan Afro Jamaican mystic with some sort of occult connections and voodoo connections, and claimed to be able to read minds. And you could you could call the one nine hundred number and call in, and Miss Cleo would would uh, basically do a psychic cold reading. Yep. Uh, that's about all there was to it. She was little more than a, a vehicle for getting people to call this number and have. It wasn't even her that would do it. It was yep. someone, someone else that had a script and they'd say stuff. So that was Miss Cleo. Um, this character was allegedly ripped off by uh, Take Two for uh, Grand Theft Auto in the form of a character Vice named Vice City, specifically. Or Vice City, yeah. Uh, Anti. 
Poet, P-O-U-L-E-T, Poulet maybe. It's probably yeah. uh, uh, Cajun. Um, very similar character, animated obviously, but similar look, similar background, some connections to the voodoo, wore kind of these brightly colored clothes and turbans. A different name, but here's a key point. The voice actress for Auntie Poulet was the same gal that played Miss Cleo. Yeah. So, uh, so um, the Psychic Network sued uh, Take-Two over it, alleging copyright infringement of that character. Now, when this case came out, uh, the commentary was along the lines of, this is absurd, this is ridiculous, the Psychic Friends character cannot possibly be copyrightable, it's nothing more than an advertising vehicle, um, it's, it's you know less distinct than, than Lucky the Leprechaun from, <laughs> from the box of cereal. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, the case... Uh, survived. I think summary judgment was the recent motion, um, which probably means it will settle now. Uh, but uh, there's at least enough here to yep. to maintain the case. So I think this case is still going on. And the fact that summary judgment didn't get rid of it means, as a matter of law at least, uh, Miss Cleo is potentially a copyrightable character. The interesting thing I think in this case is that it is not Miss Cleo. It's a character that has specifically has That's another name. Now, admittedly, it is the same actress. Um, and you wonder but, if it would have been a different actress, would the case have come out yep. differently? Because this kind of thing happens all the time where you have a transplant character yep. that's just given a new name. And I think the other thing you bump into with this is when you talk about a 1-800 number, you know, while definitely the actress was portrayed on TV and stuff like that, this was primarily a voice. Yeah. Um, in some sense, Miss Cleo is primarily a voice. I think most people sort of recognized her voice. Obviously, this has the same voice, even though the character, you know, had looks somewhat similar. I haven't seen, been able to compare the two to see exactly how similar they are and stuff like that. But one's, you know, an, an actress dressed up. One is animated. Now, we do have some, you know, precursors of animated characters. I mean, stuff having to do with Star Wars with Indiana mm-hmm. Jones. That kind of stuff has come out previously. But one of the, the things that I think is really interesting about this is the change in name. You know, this is not clearly Miss Cleo. The other question with it is, I haven't played Vice City. Um, I'm actually not a big fan of Grand Theft Auto as a game. But one of those um, things I really wonder about is whether or not she's actually a mystic in in Vice City or whether or not she just plays one. And that's a curiosity. If anybody out there happens to know, I'm curious as to, you know, whether Miss Pillay, whether she actually has psychic powers or not. Uh, because that was a kind of interesting play off the character mm-hmm. because the character was obviously supposed to have psychic powers. But clearly didn't. <laughs> but clearly didn't. I mean, I think, you know, at least the Miss Cleo character didn't. You can say what she said about the psychics online um, or the, the on the 1-800 number. But, you know, the the obvious character being the, the advertising vehicle is mm-hmm. not. So I think one of those things that really gets into this is how much do we look at it and say this is a characterization – how much has the character changed? And that's one of the mm-hmm. things I'm curious about is, is it an advertising vehicle in both cases, um, which may be a similarity, or is it actually portrayed that the character is real? Uh, yeah, is you, I, I think you'd argue that the character in the video game is probably more distinct and more developed as part of a story and a plot as opposed to just a, a, an actress in makeup pretending to be a voodoo witch doctor. Yeah, you know? and, and one has to argue that a voodoo witch doctor is clearly an archetype. An archetype, yeah, a generic archetype. Yeah. Okay, uh, we have mail. Our first question is from Marcus J., who says, How much do you script out and how do you rehearse? I think he's asking about our podcast preparation. Rehearse? Very, very little. <laughs> What's a rehearsal? Our, 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 our typical prep involves Kirk walking into my office at about a quarter to nine and saying, are we recording today? <laughs> and then about an hour later, we walk over here and record. And that's, that's about it. We, we do prepare some notes, but we, we don't. We kind of 
We, we, we stray from them freely. Yeah, most of this, I mean, it, we, we basically have a basic theme we want to talk about. Um, and I think we even mentioned it early on in some of our early episodes. Part of the reason we started doing this is because we had these discussions anyway. Yeah. And we've purposely tried to make it, let's just have the discussion. Um, which is part of the reason why we're surprised we haven't gotten more well actually is because we assume we're making yeah, mistakes. Yeah, a, a lot of this is just yeah, us <laughs> make, making stuff up as we go because we're just you know thinking of these things on the fly. So, um, yeah, we, there's not a lot of rehearsal that, that goes into this. We just kind of sit down and have a conversation. We have some general notes in case we run out of things to talk about, yeah. but that's yet to happen. <laughs> and for those of us who know us, we have these conversations with other people too. I mean, yeah. we've definitely had conversations about interesting generally against stuff like their will, <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes because they start it and make the mistake of getting us started. Yeah. Then they get the deer in the headlights look like, oh no, what have I done? <laughs> okay, Ed from Iska says, "My next band is going to be the Gesticulating Frenchman." <laughs> <laughs> That's an archetype, Ed. You do realize that that would be unprotectable, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure he does. Uh, we had a, a review, a new review on the Facebook page from Ken D. I'm going to read this because we don't get many reviews. Ken says, honestly, I'm not sure how they do it. Ben and Kirk are able to go on at relative length, relative, uh, and in detail about matters esoteric and yet are entertaining and informative and also clearly have the knack when it comes to interacting. Rookie mistakes are artfully avoided, and I've learned a heck of a lot about IP. Keep up the good work, guys. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Ken. Your check's in the mail. Yes, Um, there there you go. go. It's exactly what we told you to say. (laughs) All right, that's all we've got for today. Uh, There's the music. It's time to go. If you have questions, comments, topic ideas, send your thoughts to us on Twitter at LGGPod or email us at LGGPodcast at gmail.com. You can also talk to us on our Facebook page, search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, and find us there. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a review like Ken did. We really appreciate that. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and Kirk is at KirkDMN. Next time we got a weird one. I'm calling, it, I'm calling it the Wreck-It Ralph episode. We're going to leave fan fiction. We're going to leave character copyright. Yes, we're going to talk about how IP law applies to buildings. Uh, this is more important than you think because there was a recent case that came down about whether graffiti artists have any moral rights to the graffiti they draw on other people's buildings, which yep. are then demolished. So basically, can you sue somebody else from knocking over a building that has your art on it? You can sue them. The better question is, can you win? Yep. Uh, so we're going to dive into that. Uh, it's going to be one of our less geek-specific topics, but uh, there's been a lot of interest in art and fan art and things like that. So we, we think you'll you'll dig this. And it also gets into questions about things like, can you build a house that looks like the Simpsons house, for yep. example? Or can you recreate the, the Tony Stark's tower from uh, from the Marvel movies? Part of the reason for getting into this as well is because we've talked a lot about the idea of working in other people's universes as working in other people's universes without... Um, than necessarily being creative, still being creative works. Now we're talking about actual substantive things. Yeah, we're, this is sort of an introduction to a broader topic of, of taking things that exist only in fictional universes, not like props, uh, but things that, that don't actually exist, purely CGI things, and then recreating them in reality. Yep. And to what extent can you do that? So We've we'll probably uh, run out our music, but uh, that's oh, they'll, okay. they'll loop it, that's fine. Okay, <laughs> that's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 